Part Six of Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Camillus, Part Three. The siege lasted a long time, and the Gauls began to lack provisions. They therefore divided their forces. Some remained with their king and watched the capital, others ravaged the country round about, falling upon the villages and sacking them, not altogether in one body, but scattered about by commands and companies, some here, some there, moved by their successes to great confidence and the fear of nothing. The largest and best disciplined body of them marched upon the city of Ardea, where Camillus was staying since his exile. He lived in complete retirement and privacy, it is true, but cherished the hopes and plans, not of a man who eagerly desired to escape the notice and hands of the enemy, but of one who sought to avenge himself upon them if occasion offered. Wherefore, seeing that the Ardeans were of sufficient numbers, but lacked courage, through the inexperience and effeminacy of their generals, he began to reason with the young men first, to the effect that the mishap of the Romans ought not to be laid to the valor of the Gauls, nor the sufferings of that infatuated people, to the prowess of men who did not deserve their victory, but rather to the dictates of fortune. It was a fine thing, he said, even at dangerous risks, to repel the attack of an alien and barbarous folk, whose only end in getting the mastery was, as in the work of fire, the utter destruction of what it conquered. But in the present case, if they were bold and zealous, he would find occasion to give them a victory without any danger. After gaining the support of the young men, Camillus went to the rulers and counsellors of Ardea, and when he had won them over also, he armed all who were of age for service, and kept them together within the walls, that they might not be perceived by the enemy who were near. These had scored the country round about, and encamped in the plain, without care or concern, and heavily encumbered with their abundant booty. When night had fallen upon them, putting an end to their carousals, and silence reigned throughout their camp, Camillus, acquainted with this by his scouts, led forth the Ardeans. Passing quietly over the intervening space, they reached the camp about midnight, and with shouts and trumpet blasts on every hand confounded the men, who were scarcely brought to their senses by the din, heavy as they were with drunkenness and sleep. A few of them were sobered by fear, armed themselves, and made resistance to Camillus and his men, so that they fell fighting. But most were still mastered by sleep and wine, when they were fallen upon and slain without their arms. A few only ran from the camp under cover of darkness, and when day came were seen straggling about the fields, but horsemen pursued them and cut them to pieces. Rumor quickly carried news of this exploit to the neighboring cities, and called to arms many of those who were of age for service, particularly the Romans who had made their escape from the battle on the Alia and were in Veii. These lamented among themselves, saying, O oh, what a leader has heaven robbed Rome in Camillus! 
only to adorn Ardea with his victories. The city, which bore and reared such a hero, is dead and gone, and we, for lack of generals, sit pent up within alien walls, and see Italy ruined before our very eyes. Come, let us send to Ardea and demand our own general, or take our arms and go ourselves to him. For he is no longer an exile, nor are we citizens, now that our country is no more, but is mastered by the enemy. So said, so done, and they sent and asked Camillus to take the command. But he refused to do so, before the citizens on the capital had legally elected him. They were preserving the country, as he thought, and if they had commands for him, he would gladly obey, but against their wishes he would meddle with nothing whatsoever. This noble restraint on the part of Camillus was much admired, but it was hard to see how the matter could be referred to the capital. Nay, rather, it seemed utterly impossible, while the enemy held the city, for the messenger to elude them and reach the Acropolis. But there was a certain young man, Pontius Caminius by name, who was, in spite of his ordinary birth, a lover of glory and honor. He volunteered to attempt the task. He took no letter with him to the defenders of the capital, lest this, in the event of his capture, should help the enemy to discover the purpose of Camillus. But under the coarse garments which he wore, he carried some pieces of cork. The greater part of his journey was made by daylight and without fear, but as night came on he found himself near the city. He could not cross the river by the bridge, since the barbarians were guarding it, so he wrapped his light and scanty garments about his head, fastened the corks to his body, and thus supported swam across, came out on the other side, and went on towards the city, always giving a wide burst to those of the enemy who were watchful and wakeful, as he judged by their fires and noise. He made his way to the Carmental Gate, where there was the most quiet, at which the Capitoline Hill was most sheer and steep, and which was girt about by a huge and jagged cliff. Up this he mounted and perceived, and finally reached, with great pains and difficulty, the sentries posted where the wall was lowest. Hailing them, and telling them who he was, he was pulled up over the wall, and taken to the Roman magistrates. The senate quickly convening, he appeared before it, announced the victory of Camillus, about which they had not heard, and explained to them the will and pleasure of his fellow-soldiers. He exhorted them to confirm Camillus in his command, since he was the only man whom the citizens outside would obey. When the senate had heard his message, and deliberated upon it, they appointed Camillus dictator, and sent Pontius back again by the way he had come, wherein he repeated his former good fortune. For he eluded the enemy's notice, and brought the senate's message to the Romans outside the city. These gave eager welcome to the tidings, so that, when Camillus came, he found twenty thousand men already under arms. He collected still more from the allies, and made preparations for his attack. Thus Camillus was chosen dictator for the second time, and proceeding to Veii, he put himself at the head of the soldiers there, and collected more from the allies, with the purpose of attacking the enemy. But in Rome, some of the barbarians chanced to pass by the spot 
where Pontius had made his way by night up to the capital, and noticed in many places the marks made by his hands and feet in clambering up, and many places also where the plants that grew upon the rocks had been torn away and the earth displaced. They advised their king of this, and he too came and made inspection. At the time he said nothing, but when evening came, he assembled the nimblest men and the best mountain climbers of the Gauls and said to them, The enemy have shown us that there is a way up to them, of which we knew not, and one which men can traverse and tread. It would be a great shame for us, after such a beginning as we have made, to fail at the end, and to give the place up as impregnable, when the enemy themselves show us where it can be taken. For where it is easy for one man to approach it, there it will be no difficult matter for many to go one by one, nay, they will support and aid one another greatly in the undertaking. Gifts and honors befitting his valor shall be given to every man. So spake their king, and the Gauls eagerly undertook to do his will. About midnight, a large band of them scaled the cliff and made their way upward in silence. They climbed on all fours over places which were precipitous and rough, but which yielded to their efforts better than they had expected, until the foremost of them reached the heights, put themselves in array, and had all but seized the outwork and fallen upon the sleeping watch. Neither man nor dog was aware of their approach. But there were some sacred keys near the temple of Juno, which were usually fed without stint, but at that time, since provisions barely sufficed for the garrison alone, they were neglected and in evil plight. The creature is naturally sharp of hearing, and afraid of every noise, and these, being specially wakeful and restless by reason of their hunger, perceived the approach of the Gauls, dashed at them with loud cries, and so waked all the garrison. At once the barbarians, now that they were detected, spared them no noise, and came on more impetuously to the attack. The defenders, snatching up in haste whatever weapon came to hand, made the best shift they could. Manlius first of all, a man of consular dignity, mighty in body and exceeding stout of heart, confronting two of the enemy at once, cut off the right hand of one of them with his sword, as he was lifting his battle-axe, and dashing his shield into the face of the other, tumbled him backwards down the cliff. Then, taking his stand on the wall with those who ran to his aid, and formed about him, he repulsed the rest of the enemy, who had reached the top in no great numbers, and showed no promise to match their daring. So the Romans escaped out of their peril. At break of day they cast the captain of the watch down the cliff among the enemy, but voted to Manlius a meed of victory which did him more honors than service. They collected for him the rations which each man of them received for one day, namely, half a pound of native spelt, Roman weight, and an eighth of a pint of wine, Greek measure. After this, the case of the Gauls was less hopeful. They lacked provisions, being shut off from foraging through fear of Camillus, and disease lurked among them. They were encamped amid ruins, where a multitude of corpses had been cast at random, and besides, an air made dry and acrid by vast quantities of ashes, which wind and heat sent flying abroad, made breathing hurtful. 
but what most of all affected them was the complete change in their mode of life. They had come at all at once from regions of shade, where easy refuge could be had from the heats of summer, into a land which was low-lying and had an unnatural climate towards autumn. Then there was their long and idle sitting down before the capital. They were now willing away the seventh months of its siege. For all these reasons the mortality was great in their camp. So many were the dead that they could no longer be buried. All this, however, brought no relief to the besieged, for famine increased upon them, and their ignorance of what Camillus was doing made them dejected. No messenger could come from him, because the city was now closely watched by the barbarians. Wherefore, both parties being in such a plight, a compromise was proposed, at first by the outposts as they encountered one another. Then, since those in authority thought it best, Sulpicius, the military tribune of the Romans, held a conference with Brennus, and it was agreed that on the delivery of a thousand pounds of gold by the Romans, the Gauls should straightway depart out of the city and the country. Oaths were sworn to these terms, and the gold was brought to be weighed. But the Gauls tampered with the scales, secretly at first, then they openly pulled the balance back out of its poise. The Romans were incensed at this, but Brennus, with a mocking laugh, stripped off his sword, and added it, belt and all, to the weights. When Sulpicius asked, what means this? What else, said Brennus, but woe to the vanquished? And the phrase passed at once into a proverb. Some of the Romans were incensed, and though they ought to go back again with their gold, and endure the siege. Others urged acquiescence in the mild injustice. Their shame lay, they argued, not in giving more, but in giving at all. This they consented to do because of the emergency. It was not honorable, but it was necessary. While they were thus at odds in the matter, both with the Gauls and with themselves, Camillus led his army up to the gates of the city. On learning what was going on, he ordered the rest of his army to follow in battle array, and deliberately, while he himself, with the flower of his men, pressed on, and presently came to the Romans. These all made way for him, in decorous silence acknowledging him as their dictator. Thereupon he lifted the gold from the scales, and gave it to his attendants, and then ordered the Gauls to take their scales and ways and be off, saying that it was the custom with the Romans to deliver their city with iron and not with gold. When Brennus in wrath declared that he was wronged by this breaking of the agreement, Camillus answered that the compact was not legally made nor binding, since he himself had already been chosen dictator, and there was no other legal ruler. The agreement of the Gauls had therefore been made with men, who had no power in the case. Now, however, they must say what they wanted, for he was come with legal authority to grant pardon to those who asked it, and to inflict punishment on the guilty, unless they showed repentance. At this Brennus raised a clamor and began a skirmish, in which both sides got no further than drawing their sword and pushing one another confusedly about since the action took place in the heart of the ruined city, where no battle array was possible. 
But Brennus soon came to his senses, and led his Gauls off to their camp, with the loss of a few only. During the ensuing night he broke camp and abandoned the city, with his whole poor force, and after a march of about eight miles, encamped along the Gabinian Way. At break of day Camillus was upon him, in glittering array, his Romans now full of confidence, and after a long and fierce battle, routed the enemy with great slaughter, and took their camp. Of the fugitives, some were at once pursued and cut down, but most of them scattered abroad, only to be fallen upon and slain by the people of the surrounding villages and cities. So strangely was Rome taken, and more strangely still delivered, after the barbarians had held it seven months in all. They entered it a few days after the Eids of July, and were driven out about the Eids of February. Camillus celebrated a triumph, as it was meet that a man should do, who had saved a country that was lost, and who now brought the city back again to itself. For the citizens outside, with their wives and children, accompanied his triumphal chariot as it entered the city, and those who had been besieged on the capital, and had narrowly escaped death by starvation, came forth to meet them, all embracing one another, and weeping for the joy that was theirs. The priests and ministrants of the gods, bringing whatever sacred objects they had either buried on the spot, or carried off with them when they took to flight, displayed them, thus preserved in safety, to the citizens, who called the welcome sights with delight, believing in their hearts that the gods themselves were now coming back to Rome with them. After Camillus had made sacrifices to the gods, and purified the city in the manner prescribed by those who were versed in such rites, he restored the existing temples, and erected a new one to rumor and voice. Having sought out carefully the spot, where by night the voice from heaven, announcing the coming of the barbarian host, had fallen upon the ears of Marcus Caedicius. Owing to the zeal of Camillus and the abundant labors of the priesthood, the sites of the temples were at last uncovered, but it proved a grievous undertaking. And since the city had also to be built up again from a state of utter destruction, the multitude were overwhelmed with despair of the task, and shrank from it. They were bereft of all things, and for the present needed some rest, and repose after their sufferings, instead of toiling and wearing themselves out on a task for which they had neither means nor strength. And so it was, that insensibly their thoughts turned again to Veii, a city which remained intact and was equipped with all things needful. This gave opportunity for mischievous agitations, to such as were wont to consult only the people's will and pleasure, and ready ear was given to seditious speeches against Camillus. He had an eye, it was said, only to his own ambition and fame, when he would deprive them of a city that stood ready to receive them, and force them to pitch their tents among a mass of ruins, while they rebuilt what had become a monstrous funeral pyre. He wished not merely to be a leader and general of Rome, but to thrust Romulus to one side, and be styled its founder. The senate, therefore, fearful of this clamor, would not suffer Camillus, much as he wished it, to lay down his office within a year, although no other dictator had served more than six months. 
meanwhile the senators, by dint of kindly greetings and persuasive words, tried to soften and convert the people, pointing out the sepulchres and tombs of their fathers, and calling to their remembrance the shrines and holy places, which Romulus or Numa or some other king had consecrated and left to their care. Among other signs from heaven, they laid chief stress on the newly severed head that was found when the foundation of the capital were dug, showing, as it did, that the place where it was found was fated to be the head of Italy. Also on the sacred fire of Vesta, which had been kindled anew by her virgins after the war. If they should quench and extinguish this again by their abandonment of the city, it would be a disgrace to them, whether they saw that city occupied by immigrants and aliens, or abandoned to flocks and herds. Thus did the senators remonstrate with people, both individually in private and often in the public assemblies. They, in their turn, were moved to compassion by the wailing complaints of the multitude, who lamented the helplessness to which they were come, and begged, now that they had been saved alive, as it were from a shipwreck, in nakedness and destitution, that they be not forced to piece together the fragments of their ruined city, when another stood all ready to receive them. Accordingly, Camillus decided that the question should be debated and settled in council. He himself spoke at great length, in exhortation to preserve their common country, and every one else who wished did likewise. Finally, he called upon Lucius Lucretius, to whom custom gave the first vote, and bade him declare his opinion first, and then the other senators in the order due. Silence fell, and Lucretius was on the point of beginning, when it chanced that a centurion with a squad of the day-watch passed by outside, and calling with a loud voice on the man, who led with the standard, bade him halt and plant his standard there, for that was the best place to settle down and stay in. The utterance fell at the crisis of their anxious thought for this uncertain future, and Lucretius said, with a devout obeisance, that he cast his vote with the god. The rest, one by one, followed his example. Then the inclinations of the multitude were marvelously changed. They exhorted and incited one another to the work, and pitched upon their several sides, not by an orderly assignment, but as each man found it convenient and desirable. Therefore the city was rebuilt, with confused and narrow streets, and a maze of houses, owing to their haste and speed. Within a year's time, it is said, a new city had arisen, with walls to guard it and homes in which to dwell. Those who had been deputed by Camillus to recover and mark out anew the sacred palaces found them all in utter confusion. When they came to the shrine of Mars, in their circuit of the Palatium, they found that it had been demolished and burned by the barbarians like the rest. But as they were clearing away and renovating the place, they came upon the augural staff of Romulus, buried deep in a great heap of ashes. The augural staff is curved at one end, and is called lithium. It is used to mark off the different quarters of the heavens, in the ceremonies of divination by the flight of birds, and so Romulus had used this one, for he was a great diviner. But when he vanished from among men, the priests took his staff, 
and kept it inviolate, like any other sacred object. Their finding this at that time unsketched, when all the rest had perished, gave them more pleasing hopes for Rome. They thought it a token that assured her of everlasting safety. End of Camillus Part 3